our Holy Father Saint Benedict. In the prologue continued. Having our loins therefore girded with faith and the performance of good works, let us walk in its paths by the guidance of the gospel, that we may deserve to see him who hath called us to his kingdom. And if we wish to dwell in the tabernacle of his kingdom, we shall by no means reach it unless we run thither by our good deeds. But let us ask the Lord with the prophet, saying to him, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle, or who shall rest upon thy holy hill? After this question, brethren, let us hear the Lord answering, and show to us the way to his tabernacle, and say, He that walketh without stain, and worketh justice, he that speaketh truth in his heart, that hath not done guile with his tongue, he that hath done no evil to his neighbor, and hath not taken up a reproach against his neighbor, he that hath brought the malignant evil one to naught, casting him out of his heart with all his suggestions, and hath taken his bad thoughts while they were yet young, and dashed them down upon the rock grass. These are they who, fearing the Lord, are not puffed up with their own good works, but knowing that the good which is in them cometh not from themselves, but from the Lord, magnify the Lord who worketh in them. Saying with the prophet, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give the glory. So the Apostle Paul imputed nothing of his preaching to himself, but said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And again he said, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Today's portion of the prologue is composed of no less than seven passages from sacred scripture preceded by a general principle of reference to the gospel. Per ducatum evangelii pergamus itinera eus. Let us walk in his paths by the guidance of the gospel. After this, follow three passages from St. Paul and four from the Psalms. Ephesians 6, 14-15, Psalm 14, 4, Psalm 14, 2-4, Psalm 
its integrity, to make it one's own. This is of the four elements of tradition perhaps the most challenging one. It means to take it to heart and to integrate it into one's own thinking, yes, but even more into one's life. And this is why we read the Holy Rule every day. It is in order to facilitate the appropriation of the Holy Rule, the personal appropriation of the Holy Rule by each monk as his immediate and quotidian reference. And I could come back to that uh, another time, that the Holy Rule is the immediate and quotidian reference of the monk. To make it one's own, and uh, fourth, to transmit what has been handed on, preserved and received. Uh, to transmit it, first of all, by the example of one's life. By the example of one's life. And then, according to the state of life of each one, and according to the responsibilities that each one has, to actively transmit what one has uh, received. When any one of these four components are neglected or diminished, there is a breakdown in tradition and consequently a loss of vitality. Every example of decadence in the history of monastic life can be traced back to a breakdown in one or more of the four elements constitutive of tradition. Every example of decadence can be traced back to um, the breakdown of one or more elements, either what has uh, been offered has not been received, it's been rejected, uh, we have many examples of this, uh, or it has not been preserved in its integrity, but will take this but not this, or it hasn't been appropriated, it hasn't been taken to heart, it hasn't been integrated, or there has been a failure to transmit what one has received. So I can say this uh, with 44 years of studying monastic history that uh, in every instance where there has been a, a, a disintegration of healthy monastic life or decadence can be traced back to a breakdown in tradition. So you can also express this with uh, four nouns, reception, preservation, appropriation, transmission. Although I prefer to use the verb forms because this is really about tradition is, is an ongoing action. It is notable that St. Benedict re 
refers to the Gospels, that beautiful phrase, per ducatum evangelii, pergamus itinera eus, let us walk in his paths by the guidance of the Gospel, per ducatum evangelii. It has been said that at the beginning of the last century, the beginning of the 1900s, there was a rediscovery of the primacy of the Gospels. The Gospels as uh, the first reference uh, for anyone seeking to live in the friendship of God. Christ. Many books were written, for example, on the role played by St. Therese of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face, Doctor of the Church, in bringing souls back to the primacy of the Gospels. Similarly, so many books, especially in the French-speaking world, were written about the place of Blessed Charles de Foucault in a return to the primacy of the Gospels. I, I would be critical of these rather sweeping generalizations, and certainly not because I'm wanting devotion. St. Therese, not at all. You all know the place that she holds in my life and the place that we give her in, in our monastery, so it's not that. Nor am I in any way lacking in awareness of the providential role played by Charles de Foucault in the revival of French Catholicism in the last century. But there is a danger in saying that, oh, not until this saint appeared did we really understand uh, the primacy of the Gospels. Because uh, Saint Benedict places this at the very beginning of the rule, per ducatum evangelii pergamus itinerabius, let us walk in his paths by the guidance of the Gospel. St. Benedict treats the liturgic Gospel as a kind of parousia. As you know, the Gospel read at the end of Matins uh, is surrounded with the utmost reverence and solemnity. It is a moment of great majesty in the Opus Dei when all of the brethren stand attention for the hearing of the gospel and respond Amen. But that is the liturgical enactment of St. Benedict's fundamental attitude to the gospels. So the monk is, of course, first of all, and above all, the man of the gospels. The son of St. Benedict in every age and in every culture will be the man of the Gospels, of the Apostle, St. Paul, 
and of the Psalms. And uh, I find it remarkable that in the writings of the last century's brightest Benedictine beacon, Blessed Glogomarmian, a contemporary, by the way, uh, at least a little bit, of St. Therese and of Charles de Foucault, we find unchanged the same fidelity to the same biblical sources, the Gospels, the Apostle, and the Psalms. If you study attentively uh, Abbot Marmion's trilogy, Christ, the ideal of the monk, Christ, the light of the soul, Christ and his mysteries, you will be struck by his abundant references to the Gospels, notably to the Fourth Gospel. He's Johannine to the core, to the Fourth Gospel, to St. Paul, to the Psalms. I find it a beautiful thing, this continuity. Uh, here we read this in the prologue, and we see it uh, lived out, wonderfully portrayed in the life and teaching of uh, a man who died not uh, yet a hundred years ago in the life of Blessed Columbus Marmon. The son of St. Benedict will have contact with these ever-flowing sources primarily in the Divine Office and Holy Mass. It's not in personal study nor in meditation, uh, but the primary contact of the monk with the Gospels, with St. Paul and with the Psalms happens in the choir. In the choir. What the monk receives in choir he takes with him back to his cell or to the scriptorium. There he meditates, that is, I remind you of the patristic uh, meaning of the word to meditate, he repeats, he repeats what he has sung and heard and received in choir. There he turns to prayer what he has repeated. There, it pleases God to inflame with the divine spark of love what he has turned to prayer. And so we have lexio, meditatio, oratio, contemplatio. But the source of these four moments that Gigo the Carthusian calls the scala claustralium, the ladder monks, that by which the monk ascends to union with God, uh, is the, the, the latter, the latter rests in the choir. And the monk begins to climb the latter from his choir stall. So the choir is the primary point of contact with the word of God. And thus does the monk return to choir each time compelled to give thanks for all that he for all that has been given him and in the end all turns to praise 
end all turns to praise, just as in the end of the Bible, in the book of the Apocalypse, all turns to praise, so too in the life of the monk. I could say much more about this chapter, uh, just this, this segment of, of this, this portion of the prologue, because it is extraordinarily rich, it is uh, a, a more than adequate treatment of what, using the patristic terms rightly, we refer to as the vita activa, the vita contemplativa, the active life and the contemplative life, which terms do not mean underscored three times, do not mean what uh, they are uh, supposed to mean in uh, modern parlance. The vita activa is the, uh, the struggle, the struggle, the agony, spiritual combat. And so St. Benedict uh, speaks of that when he says, um, and if we wish to dwell in the tabernacle of his kingdom, that is the Vita Contemplativa, we shall by no means reach it unless we run thither by our good deeds. That's the Vita Activa. And, but let us ask the Lord with the prophet, saying to him, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? Or who shall rest, note the word, rest, Upon thy holy hill. That is the description of the Vita Contemplativa. Alquis requiescet in Monte Santo Tour. The quies, the quies of contemplation, quiet repose. And this tells us something about how Saint Benedict prayed. He prayed by holding conversation with God by asking questions and waiting for the answers. And so uh, when St. Teresa uh, of Jesus in the 15th century uh, talks about prayer as an intimate conversation with God, of course uh, this uh, particular definition of hers uh, has passed into the ordinary discourse of those who, who treat of, of, of prayer, and yet it's, we can trace it back uh, to St. Benedict. Uh, contemplative prayer uh, did not begin with the Counter-Reformation saints in the 15th century. Sometimes people have the notion that uh, there was this great resurgence of contemplative prayer and counter-reformation, and that we only go back uh, to that, and so we, we read St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and uh, Benedict of Cranfield and Augustine Baker and company, even uh, Raymond in his history of religious sentiment in 17th century France speaks of the mystical invasion of France which began when Madame Acari, who was a friend of St. Francis de Sales, uh, in, introduced the 
Theresian Carmel into France, thereby igniting a great conflagration of contemplative prayer in France. Well, sometimes people go only uh, back as far as the mystical invasion of France. Uh, and yet, if we read the Holy Rule attentively, we see a complete doctrine of the ascetical and mystical life in the Holy Rule. So, Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle, or who shall rest upon thy holy hill? After this question, brethren, let us hear the Lord answering. Audiamus Dominum Respondentem. That's the other part of the prayer. First, to put our questions to the Lord, and then, Audiamus Dominum Respondentem. Let us hear the Lord answering and showing to us the way to his tabernacle, the way to union with himself, to contemplative prayer, and saying, He that walketh without stain and worketh justice, that's the Vita Activa. He that speaketh truth in his heart, that hath not done guile with his tongue, he that hath done no evil to his neighbor, uh, those who in later centuries spoke of the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way, it's all here. It's all here in the Holy Rule. So, he that walketh without stain and worketh justice, he that speaketh truth in his heart, that hath not done guile with his tongue, he that hath done no evil to his neighbor, and hath not taken up a reproach against his neighbor, he that hath brought the malignant evil one to naught. Spiritual combat here. Casting him out of his heart with all his suggestions. A kind of exorcism, really, huh? to cast out. And hath taken his bad thoughts. There's not a man here who does not struggle with bad thoughts. And by bad thoughts, I don't mean sexual thoughts exclusively. That's, that's, that's a given. But all sorts of bad thoughts. Thoughts of discouragement, thoughts of becoming gloomy, despondent, critical, mean-spirited, hostile, uh, jealous, fault-finding, proud, closed, resistant to correction, inwardly disobedient, that means being disinclined to listen. Disinclined to listen, that's inward disobedience. All of these are bad thoughts. Or if you want the catalog of the bad, bad thoughts, go to John Cassian and go to Evagoras, and you'll have a very good catalog of bad thoughts in the uh, list of the vices. What does St. Benedict say? He that hath brought the malignant one to naught, casting him out of his heart with all his suggestions. It's very physical what he describes here. You reach into the large ticket, you cast it away. While they were yet young, it's a very important phrase. Because if you begin to dialogue 
with such thoughts, they grow. And as they grow, they become stronger. They take on the life of their own. And this is why our monastic practice involves disclosure of one's thoughts to the attitude. The brother who says, Oh, I, I, I can sort this out on my own. It's already an act of pride. And the devil claps his hands with glee. He says, Ah, he thinks he can sort things out. You know, now I really have my foot in the door. Whereas the brother who as soon as he begins to have evil thoughts discloses them, it's the undoing of the devil because he's unmasked. And the devil uh, cannot face the light. And so if you open uh, to the light by confessing your thoughts, the devil runs. He's like certain kinds of insects so as soon as the light is turned on like cockroaches. Uh, they scurry looking for a dark place. So be mindful of the cockroaches of your thoughts. And they don't like to be exposed to the light. And when a brother keeps his thoughts to himself, they tend to um, metastasize and the infection spreads through the whole spiritual organism. So that the brother then becomes, um, at, at the end of the day, difficult to live with, because his inner turmoil, his his unrest, this poison that is spreading through his soul, will in one way or another manifest itself outwardly, and so uh, never hold conversation with bad thoughts. You're not going to win. The more you, you converse with such thoughts, the stronger they become. Rather, dash them down on the rock Christ. And this dashing uh, can certainly be done uh, in, in prayer. As soon as one becomes aware of the uh, emergence of such a thought. One prays, O oh God, come to my assistance, O oh Lord, make haste to help me. And one takes that thought and attaches it against Christ. One should develop the habit of sending one's thoughts to the feet of Christ. Sending one's thoughts to the feet of Christ. Uh, and some thoughts have to be sent back to hell whence they came. There are certain thoughts that have a whiff of sulfur about them. Uh, clearly, they originate in hell. Such thoughts should be sent back to hell, sent to the feet of Christ, that he would dispose of them. And then St. Benedict says, These are those who, fearing the Lord, are not puffed up with their own good works, but knowing that the good which is in them cometh not from themselves, but from the Lord, magnify the Lord. That's a very beautiful phrase. Operantem in se dominum magnificant. O 
Operante mit Segomium Magnificat. They magnify the Lord who worketh in them. And this, of course, is a, a blow to uh, the, the Pelagians and the semi-Pelagians. St. Benedict always emphasizes the primacy of grace, saying with the prophet, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give the glory. And then he closes this portion of the prologue with two passages from the Apostle. <coughs> so the Apostle Paul imputed nothing of his preaching to himself, but said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, St. Benedict uh, clearly affirms primacy of divine grace. And I cannot emphasize enough the importance of grace particularly in the current climate of the church, when so many moral questions are being debated, I have the impression uh, that one speaks of everything but grace. Uh, and yet, uh, it's all about grace. It's all about grace. And St. Benedict concludes a portion of the prologue, and again he said, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So it ends in the end with giving glory to the Lord, the doxological finality of Benedictine life. The glory of the Filio and Spiritus Sancto, that is the whole of Benedictine life, a perpetual doxology. So I could say much, much more about this.